I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like, how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long-term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Baseball, soccer, cricket, football. You've likely seen a game on TV or been to a game in person. But do you know what it takes to create the massive structures that house these sports and the thousands of spectators in attendance? How they even came to be, or how they're evolving today? This is Spaces Podcast, where we aim to elevate the appreciation and understanding of the spaces we occupy every day. Hello! My name is Demetrius. This is Michelle. Hey everyone! And you are listening to Spaces Podcast. Thank you for coming back everyone. Uh, Jason is out today. I think he's running around doing hockey or has a meeting or something. I have no idea. <laughs> but he's he's sitting this episode out. Uh, today we're going to discuss stadiums. Michelle, when was the last time you were in a stadium and what, whether it's base, uh, baseball or football, and what was your impression of that stadium? So the last time was probably two or three weeks ago, so fairly recently. Okay. And it was Angel Stadium of Anaheim. Okay. Baseball. Yeah. Um, my impression. So I actually think that Angel Stadium is pretty uninspiring. <laughs> yeah. uh, 
You have, you know, a sea of parking, surface parking surrounding the stadium. The stadium sort of sits all by itself. I think it's been around for a while. Wasn't it built in the 60s? And they've done some improvements. You know, they've got the water fountain feature rock thing in the back. Yeah. But the food is really not interesting. (laughs) And I was was recently, probably two months ago, I was at... um, the Giant Stadium. Uh, what's the name okay. of that park? AT- is it AT&T Park? Uh, I have no idea. I don't follow baseball. Oh, okay. Much, well, so. up in San Francisco. Yeah. I, for some reason, I feel like they changed the name, but I should have done my research. Anyhow, yeah. that was an inspiring stadium, right? Okay. So that... Why, know, why do you... I, I don't... Well, first of all, just the view, right? So when you're know. sitting in the in the, in the the bleachers, uh, not bleachers, in the seats, yeah. you have the view of... Uh, the water mm-hmm. over the outfield, yeah. which is just really, really cool to see. Yeah. Um, but it seemed like even the food venues, instead of the food venues sort of just being lined inside the interior hallway, mm-hmm. they actually kind of made it interesting. And there were places to sort of sit outside, so to speak. I, I don't know. It's just it had a very different feel. Yeah. Um, but the other stadium that I actually think is really, really cool. Uh, that I've gone to a number of times and was at recently as well is Bank of California Stadium okay. in Los Angeles um, next to the LA Coliseum. Yeah. The, side of the former LA Sports Arena. Yeah. I should and, have mentioned, and soccer too. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. And so Bank of California is where the LAFC, Los Angeles Football Club, plays. Yeah. And that's a really small stadium. I think that's only like 22,000 yeah, seats. Yeah. It's really, really small. But super modern looking mm-hmm. feeling really cool food venues mm-hmm. um just a great vibe really clean now part of the cleanliness is probably that it's brand new yeah. but here nor there it's just a really really cool um inspiring space, space to be in yeah the last stadium that i've been in was the uh cowboy stadium uh, i posted a picture on our instagram a while ago went for a bachelor party actually and when you get there, it's just this massive structure, and there's these two large truss structures that um, that are kind of a arch arched that go the full expanse of the um, of the building uh, from front to back. So when you walk up, there's just this enormous uh, structure of glass in front of you. It's just like uh, ceiling to floor glass. And as you're walking up, I have no idea. I should have looked up the height, but it's just this tower of glass in front of you. And you go inside. And once you get to the inside, you can, there's probably, I don't know, maybe 50 to 70 feet or so in front of you of just concrete area of the the concourse. And all you can see is kind of the the top of the, uh, the stadium, just in your lines, like you see the 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 top of the stadium that covers the field so you get this little peak this little kind of hint of it and if you want which is what i did i didn't look at because you can run up and go see the field and just get this amazing overwhelming feeling yeah Yeah, right uh but i just waited to get till we got to our spot so you just hear the noise of the field and you're kind of walking around and uh hear people cheering and then we start going up the stairs because we're cheap and don't have money so we're like <laughs> way at the top uh so we're, we're winding up the stairs and you just kind of get these small glimpses of the sure. field small glimpses yeah. and you approach the top stair and you walk out and then it's just like poof 
Right. And you just see the full expanse of the stadium. It's massive. So I kind of get that same. So, okay. So uh, my Trojans yeah. played in that stadium uh, the last two years. Okay. And I, unfortunately, I didn't go to either of those games, but I saw so many pictures yeah. of cla- like former classmates and friends who did fly out and, yeah. and go to the game. And that stadium also has, isn't it one of the largest uh, jumbotrons? Yeah. Yeah. And that maybe, I, I don't know the fact on it, but it, it's, it's yeah, gigantic, right? It's the largest single uh, jumbotron. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. And they actually had to make some adjustments because when they first started uh, playing there, the kickers kept hitting it with yes, the football. Yes, <laughs> right. I remember hearing that. Yeah. So I'd be remiss to not also discuss uh, for just a minute the Coliseum. Yeah. Speaking of my yeah. Trojans. Yeah. Yeah. So that feeling that you get of, of you know, walking, you kind of get these glimpses and then all of a sudden when you sort of walk and you open up into it and it's just awe-inspiring yeah. and huge and loud and yeah. expansive and all those other uh, adjectives. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, the Coliseum is kind of like that in a way as well. Have you have you been? Yeah, yeah. Because yeah, so you walk down these tunnels, right? So they have mm. you know, all the tunnels, and and as you're approaching this tunnel, you can sort of just hear faintly the roar. And as you get closer toward the end of that tunnel, uh, all of a sudden it opens up, yeah. and it's just huge and giant. I'm actually really excited. Um, the Coliseum just went through a massive renovation yeah. over the last two years, two <laughs> two football seasons, and it is all complete now. And our first um, USC Trojan home game football game is in three weeks, so okay. it'll be very fun to see yeah. the improvements and just you know the changes that have been made. And you know, Coliseum is obviously such an old, old, old stadium, so yeah. it'll be neat to see it all revamped and refurbished and yeah. ready for a new season. Yeah, yeah, it'll be exciting. So uh, we have a guest today uh, who's going to join us, and she's. Uh, an expert, I guess you can say. And, uh, She's a really big deal. Yeah. Like, I, I didn't realize how big of a deal she was. Yeah. You know, you sent me this video. So, so Demetrius sends me this video on uh, oh, the science. It aired on the Science Channel, yeah. right? Yeah. And so it's a TV show called Building Giants. Yeah. Which, if you have not watched this TV show, I mean, good Lord, it's really cool stuff. Yeah. And so this episode, maybe I'm jumping ahead. I apologize if no, I am. But, no, it's fine. But... You know, he sends me this episode and it's called World's Greatest Stadiums. And so I'm watching it and like the main person that they keep interviewing is our guest yeah. today yeah. on the show. Yeah. Like on Space's podcast. How yeah. cool is that? Yeah. Yeah. So as I was, you know, prepping and putting everything everything together, I was kind of looking through her credentials and I was like, how do we pull this off? <laughs> I mean, I don't I don't know how you pulled it off either. Yeah. I mean, we're we're I guess we should just pat each other on the back and yeah. say, "Hey, we're, we're, we're starting to make it." Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So our guest today is the managing partner of Hatville Group, a multidisciplinary engineering consulting firm based in New York. She has over 25 years of experience in the design of complex structures worldwide. She frequently writes and presents on topics related to innovation and technology in engineering and architecture. Her firm, Hatfield Group, focuses on synthesis of engineering and architecture, putting client value first. Hatfield Group uses bespoke engineering design, technology, and innovation to achieve their clients' goals. And with a keen appreciation for design, she has worked on iconic buildings around the world. 
She sits on numerous national industry boards and teaches at Yale University School of Architecture. Her experience includes the new $1.5 billion uh, NFL Atlanta Falcons Stadium, uh, which is the Mercedes-Benz Stadium, with a never-been-done-before aperture-style retractable roof. Other projects include the new headquarters for PNC Bank in, in Pittsburgh and the 9-11 Pavilion at World Trade Center site in New York City. She was featured on the television programs on the Science Channel's World's Greatest Stadium and on the History Channel's Building Giants. She was named a power player and game changer by Sports Business Journal magazine. She is both a licensed engineer and architect plus a LEED BD&C certified professional, Erlene Hatfield. <laughs> Erlene, thank you Wait, for joining and, us. And let me just add, Hatfield Group, women-owned business, yes, doing yes, yes. this size of projects, amazing, 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 amazing. Yeah. Very cool stuff. Very inspiring. Erlene, you are probably one of our most decorated. Uh... By far. <laughs> no offense to our other guests. Yeah. <laughs> one well, of. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. So thank you for joining us, Erlene. Yeah, uh, my pleasure to be here. Besides your your bio, is there anything else you would like to kind of give as far as your background? Well, maybe just maybe reiterate that, you know, I'm both a structural engineer uh, and an architect. I have degrees in both. Um, but I'm really I'm a practicing structural engineer and I'd say like a lapsed architect. But I think that my architecture degree really gives me an appreciation for what architects are trying to do. Yeah. And so um, it really informs a lot of the engineering that, that we do. And maybe I'll just mention I'm from the Midwest. I started my career in Nebraska. I went to school in Nebraska. But I've been here in New York City for the last 20 years. Okay. Where'd you go to architecture school? At the University of Nebraska. Oh, there you go. <laughs> yep, yep. Yeah, that is so impressive that you went through architecture and structural engineering. Um, tell us, for, for our listeners that don't know sort of intimately what a structural engineer does, um, what does a structural engineer do? Sure. So as structural engineers, we basically make the building stand up. We make it safe. We make it meet all the codes. So we design things like columns and beams and floors and walls and make buildings strong enough to resist wind and hurricanes and tornadoes and get all the people that are in it. So we really support the architects who design the buildings and we make them safe. Yeah. And then there's a lot of back and forth between the architect and structural engineer as far as do you really want to do this? Uh, yeah. You know, it's yeah. going to drive up costs exponentially to, yes. to pull this off. Um, so there's a lot of back and forth and coordination between structural and uh, architecture, especially early on. Correct. Yes. Yeah. So um, before we dig into the conversation and details of stadiums, uh, we want to give our listeners a little bit of a understanding of kind of where we've come from. And to do that, you got to go back in time. Seven seventy six BCE in Olympia, Greece. A young cook, Koroibos from Elise, steps onto a sandy track. 
naked and barefoot, tradition for male competitors at the time. Fueled by the cheers of 45,000 Greeks, Koroibos sprints 180 meters, beating out the competition to win the first recorded Olympic Games. Long and narrow, in the shape of a U or a horseshoe, and sometimes cut into the side of a hill, early Greek stadiums occurred on religious sites like Olympia, as these competitions were intended to honor deities and demigods like Zeus. Roman events did not honor gods, but put gladiators on display. Romans built two types of stadiums, the circus, a long track broad enough to accommodate four horse chariot races, and the amphitheater, oval or round in plan, completely enclosed on all sides and designed for maximum seating capacity and view. The most famous amphitheater is the Colosseum, built in 80 CE. 157 feet tall, 50,000 seat capacity, 80 entrances, and tiered seating by social hierarchy. After the fall of Rome, it was nearly 2,000 years before stadiums were revived. A resurgence of appreciation and pursuit of health and sculpted bodies led schools to develop athletic programs. The subsequent renewal of interest in large-scale spectator sports reinvigorated a need for stadiums. Stadium construction moved from Italy and Greece to England, where Lord's Cricket Ground in London started taking shape in 1787. By 1812, Lord's had found a new location and started creating what is now likely the oldest stadium in use in the world. Baseball stadiums, holding well over 10,000 spectators emerged, and the first football stadium came to life in Philadelphia. Franklin Field, the oldest stadium still operating for football games, offered the first scoreboard in the United States. In England, where soccer was on a major rise, the first soccer-specific venue came in 1892, where Everton FC opened Goodison Park in Liverpool. At the time, stadiums were simple designs mostly wooden grandstands around a field, but technological advancements of the Industrial Revolution soon pushed stadiums to evolve in size and form. In 1895, the advent of turnstiles added crowd control, preventing people from getting in for free, and revenue soared, just in time to fund the next wave of modern stadiums. After the revival of the Olympic competition in 1896, the Olympics and sports-specific designs reshaped stadiums altogether. American football contributed the elliptical bowl. Baseball aimed to supply maximum roofed seating capacity to protect spectators from the sunlight. A notable pioneer in this trend was the triple-tiered Yankee Stadium in New York built in 1923. In 1930, the Estadio Centenario, designed by architect Juan Antonio Scasso, hosted the inaugural FIFA World Cup. Its design was modest as to not get in the way of the game. The amphitheater-like structure had hundreds of circular steps cast into a natural depression that surrounded the pitch with simple access at its four corners. By 1936, interest in spectator sports reached an all-time high. The Summer Olympics in Berlin was the world's first live televised sporting event. Just three years later, college baseball, college football, and the NFL all televised games for the first time. Television was a luxury that many could not afford, 
so demand to attend games was still high and stadiums continued to evolve to increase capacity and provide a great experience. Reinforced concrete allowed the Dodger Stadium in Los Angeles to reduce columns and maximize views in 1959. The Astrodome, built in 1965 in Houston, Texas, with a seating capacity of 62,000 people, was the first major fully roofed stadium. In the 1980s, flexible steel cables made it possible to span large roof dimensions, increase speed of construction, reduce structural weight, and reduce construction costs in covered stadiums. An example was the Metrodome in downtown Minneapolis, Minnesota, a 64,000-seat capacity stadium and the only venue to have hosted an MLB All-Star Game, a Super Bowl, NCAA Final Four, and a World Series. By 1989, the first successful retractable roof took shape in Toronto's Sky Dome. Then, in 1994, the World Cup came to the U.S., making it very apparent that sports-specific designs did not cross over. The final was held in the Rose Bowl in Pasadena, California, designed by architect Myron Hunt in 1921. Originally for college football, this design led to a disconnect between the players and the soccer fans who were used to a closer view on the pitch. Like the understanding of a fan-to-player relationship, attention to detail and context really makes a design work. Completed in 2019, the Estadio Alfredo Harp Pelu, home of the Diablos Rojos baseball team in Mexico City, exhibits this as architect Francisco Gonzalez Pulido shared with me. Function is also about culture. It's also about context, as well as it is about construction and technology. So our philosophy is pretty much focused on really trying to respond to context in the broader, broadest sense that we can. His Chicago-based firm, FGP Atelier, was tasked with designing a striking yet culturally and contextually appropriate design. I think it's been very successful, not only because it works, but because it works for the Mexicans, you know? I mean, that stadium probably wouldn't have worked the same way in Minneapolis, right? As good as it is because of the climate, because of the way we are engaged with our environment in Mexico, because of the way we leave sports, you know, as Mexicans, we leave sports in a very particular way for us. It's almost like suddenly we're a family of 21,000 people. In addition to the cultural and contextual connection, Francisco had a unique vision for a stadium. I had a, a notion of what a baseball stadium shouldn't be. Should not be? Know? Should not be, you know. And not only a baseball stadium, a stadium in general. You know, I think stadiums, I don't like these buildings in particular because they're big containers. And, and, and they tend to be very massive, you know. So I was actually really concerned about creating just another massive, bulky building. And I didn't want that. I wanted a building that was very porous, very open, that you could feel that you're still in a park, but there's a roof above you. And this was really the concept of the building. It's a park with a roof. And, and not because I'm saying it. There's people who have actually told me this. They said, it's amazing. You walk through this building and you feel that you're all the time outside. You know, but not outside like like outdoors, but outside in the city, you yeah. know, because I see the city back there. I see the mountains, you know, I see, I see more than just the game or, or the 21,000 people that are here today, right now, you know, the Formula One track is around us. So, and this is a big event. So 
So it, it was important for us that the building was very connected with context. The first phase is what you see right now, which is the, the sitting ball, all the concessions inside of the building, the roof, you know, everything. The second phase, we're building batting cages for kids that are going to be on this side, basically. They're going to be for free. The building, Dimitri, what is remarkable is that it's surrounded by a very forgotten community, you know, forgotten by the government. You know, the areas around the building are very poor. Imagine what a beautiful thing for these kids to be playing here and dreaming that one day they're going to be playing here, right? Yeah. This is so important, you know, to give them that hope, uh, that, that, that dream, right, that this could be their, their place in the future. And then back here, what we call the berm, this is the next phase of the project. We talk about a marketplace. It gives an opportunity for the people from the area to come here and sell their little things, right? Taquitos, tamalitos, whatever they do, right? Food, little craft things. And then on this side, on the other side of the, of the batting cages, we're thinking of urban farming. Places where they can go so they can learn how to grow veggies in, an, in urban environments, right? So, so the building is more than just the stadium, right? And that's why the idea of the park with the roof is so appropriate. And what we actually discovered as we were working on this project is that context became much more important than building. Now, as TVs, living conditions, and broadcasting improved, staying home to watch games grew to outpace the in-person experience. By the 1990s, Major League Baseball stadiums were aging and almost always half empty. In June 2018, there was a 10% drop in attendance from the previous year. The 2018 NFL regular season saw its lowest average since 2011. Oddly, owners probably don't really care. For now. Broadcasting and viewership has improved so much that in 2011, CBS, NBC, and Fox committed to pay the NFL a total of $39.6 billion between the 2014 and 2022 seasons, with fees set to rise about 7% annually, meaning they will each be paying the NFL about $3.1 billion per year by 2022. ESPN signed a deal to pay the NFL $15.2 billion through 2021 for the rights to Monday Night Football, and in 2018, Fox signed an additional deal for $3.3 billion for exclusive rights to Thursday Night Football. While it's likely not a major concern now, leagues and owners understand that lifelong fandom is typically solidified from the in-person experience. So if you can't fill a stadium, one solution is to make it smaller. Population decline in Cleveland post-2008 recession influenced the remodel of the then Jacobs Field. With its 43,000 seat capacity, unused suites were converted into a two-story indoor-outdoor family area with baseball-related activities. The right field was turned into a social space with a large outdoor bar and gathering area. The right center field area opens to a city around it, Nearly every change in the refreshed 34,000 seat park was geared towards engagement. The Bank of California Stadium, designed by Gensler and home to the MLS soccer team LAFC, was opened in Los Angeles, California 
in April 2018. With a seating capacity of just 22,000 seats, rows inclined at 34 degrees, the steepest in MLS, the closest seats only 12 feet from the pitch, and all seats within 135 feet of the pitch, this stadium has the reputation of being one of the best experiences in town. Leagues and team owners realize that lifelong fandom is forged through meaningful experiences. The child riding their parents' shoulders into the stadium and seeing their favorite player and the field in person for the first time. Friends tailgating before the game. The collective joy or sorrow as the game clock ticks down. Those memories and experiences make a difference. But how do you compete for fans' attention in today's age of comfort personalization, and on-demand services. In addition to improved infrastructure, attention to context, community, and experience appear to be a great start to the future of stadium design. Okay, so Erlene, to start off the conversation, I want to kind of give a, a sort of high-level um understanding of stadiums and what goes into designing a stadium and kind of what is your process um in in approaching a stadium design sure sure so uh there's a lot that goes into a stadium you know they're big big projects and first and foremost we typically try and make the fan experience as exciting as possible so that has to do with Things like sight lines and where the seats are so that you can everybody in the, in the, in the stadium or arena can see the field. Um, it has to do with all the, the locker rooms and support spaces and things that happen behind the scenes. And then there's typically offices and concessions and how everything moves around. But, you know, ultimately what we're trying to do is create a place that's exciting to be in, where people come together to enjoy sports um, and, you know, really try and make places that are exciting uh, for both the athletes and all the spectators. Okay. To sort of improve that experience by uh, taking sight lines and things into account, uh, can you expand on kind of how you approach that? Yeah, sure. So, you know, the, the fans today um, have so many distractions, especially younger <laughs> fans, right? Yeah. There's, you know, all kinds of other things they can, people can do with their time between, you know, things on your phone and social media and busy Instagramming. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Right. So, so how do we make stadiums exciting for different generations? Right. It, it's not, you know, the stadium of the future isn't going to be what we're doing right now, just because of the way that people interact with media and interact with entertainment. And so thinking about the design of a stadium for, you know, the, younger generations and trying to make it exciting and that there's still a reason to come together with 70,000 other fans in one place, right? And not just watch it on your man cave, watch a game, you know, at home in your man cave, but that make the stadium such an exciting shared experience that people want to actually be there. That's what we really strive to do when we design stadiums. Yeah. 
So uh, I think it's a good time to kind of bring up the the Atlanta Falcons stadium, uh, which, oh, I wanted to mention, I watched the, uh, what was it, the um, Building Giants episode. That is an intense episode. <laughs> uh, Wild. When you're... We'll post the link, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah we'll it's... post the link. So, c- because they go into detail about how you guys did the, uh, and I'd like to get your your sort of explanation as well, but uh, raising the roof truss into mm-hmm. place in a high stress situation um, <laughs> and you guys having to basically, I, I would love to hear how on your side in the in the process of designing it, how um, how detailed is that process and how sure are you that it's going to work when it gets <laughs> to the field? Well, I think well, the other thing too is just, it's because you didn't just design something, you then also had to design how you're actually going to build it and install it right like the the lowering of of the, the, roof, the roof with trust. those hinges which is not actually a piece of the structure that goes away entirely like that's right right so the you know we design the structure and we design a general concept of how it can be built right because constructability the way that the building is built actually has a role in the design of the actual structure itself it's important to understand how things are built um, but we had great contractors um, and they had uh, consultants and engineers that actually designed those hinges um, that really looked at the individual nitty gritty of how the, the individual trusses were erected. So we looked at it in big picture concepts and made sure we, we baked that into our structural design. But then, you know, the contractors are the ones that actually looked at the kind of the smaller pieces. Hmm. But, you know, you said how confident were we that we were gonna, it's going to work? You know, we're 100% confident, <laughs> you know, so we know it's going to work. We design it. We check it. We have internal peer reviews. We have external peer reviewers. Um, and, and we make sure that everything we design from, you know, the 730-foot-long truss to, you know, the individual bolts in a connection are all 100% safe. Maybe for our listeners who haven't had the benefit of, of watching the video, maybe we can kind of just talk about the system that you've designed and um, why that roof system is so unique and different. And Yeah. Yeah, sure. The, uh, so the, I'll start with the Atlanta Falcons. When they were looking for a design team, they were looking for somebody to do something innovative, something creative, to create an icon for the city of Atlanta, for the team, for Georgia. They really wanted something, a stadium that stands out. And so we worked together with the architects who came up with, they came up with this idea of this retractable roof that opens almost like a camera aperture or camera aperture. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's, it looks like it spins open. And there are eight moving pieces, which is entirely different than the retractable roofs in the United States, which most of them have two pieces that just separate. And they're very slow, and then they kind of roll back together. And it's not easy to tell if the roof is opening. You know, <laughs> right, they, right. You know, it's not, it's not an experience that you go, wow, that's amazing. I got to be there, right? It's like, I don't know, is it, is it open? I think it's moving. <laughs> um, you know, so what we were trying to do was something different. That, like, when it opens, it's super cool. And you see this, like, beam of light that opens up as it starts to enlarge from the center. And so the eight moving pieces that we have, these big pieces of structure, are 200 feet long. And they cantilever. So just to put that in perspective, 200 feet is about the height of a 20-story building. And that's laid on its side eight times on the roof. Wild. Pieces move 250 feet. So like the concept, when we first came up with it, the architects showed us this idea. They're like, 
will this work? And I, <laughs> I said, well, let us check and run some numbers. And we looked at it. And then I, you know, I called him back and I said, yes, we can get this to work. Like this idea is, is completely doable. And so, um, and so, yeah, so the cool thing about this roof that many people don't understand is that when you first see it, it looks like it's spinning open, like I said, like a camera aperture. But in reality, all eight of those roof pieces are moving in a straight line. Yeah, they're just sliding back, right? They're just sliding yeah. back and forth on top of two trusses. And that's what really makes this roof work because had we had to do rotation, then that in- introduces a whole other series of structural complexities and building complexities. And rotation is not easy to do on such a big scale. Mm-hmm. So that idea of moving in a straight line was really important to make this feasible. Was there a uh, original desire to have that rotation? And then you guys sort of suggested otherwise? There, there was. And actually, I should mention this. So during this competition phase, we got together with the architect, who is HOK, and Bill Johnson is the lead designer. Amazing. Where are they based? They're based in Kansas City. Okay. They're based in Kansas City. And um, so we had Bill come to my office in New York, and um, and we sat down, and we had these design charrettes where basically it was like an all-day workshop where we'd throw out ideas, and most of them were terrible, and we <laughs> crossed them off the list. We had some that were kind of interesting, and some were more interesting than others. But we invited a guy named Chuck Hoberman. And Chuck Hoberman is the inventor of the Hoberman Sphere, which is a toy that kids have that is the small sphere, and then you pull it apart. Oh, yeah. Every kid has one, right? They're super cool. Yeah. So Chuck is like an artist and a sculptor. He teaches up at Harvard. And so we invited Chuck to these meetings and because we wanted to do something different with this retractable roof. So it's Bill and Chuck and I and you know some of our staff. And... Um, coming up with all these ideas and when bill came up with this idea he and his team about this roof that opens like this aperture initially it was rotating and chuck was like no no no, it can't rotate and like chuck is the one that really got us to rethink how we could make the same kind of idea work but in a way that was a lot more doable okay I, I have a frisbee that does that and, and it's the same thing it's not it looks like it's rotating but really right. it's just sliding yeah exactly right yeah isn't that cool yeah <laughs> um so I wanted to sort of highlight some of those elements. We talked about these this massive truss and roof system, which those trusses, uh, I understand they were 15,000 tons. 15,000 tons. Uh, trying to think. That, that sounds right. So I think a lot of them were heavier than that, actually. Okay. And yeah. the, and the, the longest, uh, 720 feet? Is that correct? It's 720, 730 feet, depending on where you count the start and the end. But yeah. yes, that's right. So with that massive weight, you obviously have to have a massive foundation, which was 120 feet deep, correct? Yeah. In some spots, yes. Oh. So, so did you, you dug down then from yes. ground level? So yeah. So the uh, we had local engineers, these guys, Sykes Engineering. They're from Atlanta. They were awesome. So they know Atlanta, they know the soil down there, sure. they design the foundations. And what's crazy about the site that we were given was the deeper end, or one end of the site, the foundations go down 120 feet and they're drilled down into the ground, right? So you drill these shafts and they fill it with concrete. Mm-hmm. The other mm-hmm. side of the site, actually the soil's pretty good. So they just went down like 10 feet, right? Amazing. So it's, yeah. it's very uneven just because the soil, the, the good soils, kind of slopes underneath the site and so 
It was high on one side and low on the other. But we didn't design that. Our, our local engineer, Sykes, did it, and they were awesome. And just out of curiosity, I come from the land side of uh, the building industry, so I'm just curious how the land was found. Uh, was it city property, or do you have any insight on that? Yeah, interestingly enough, it was the parking lot where people used to tailgate to go to the original Georgia Dome. So the Georgia Dome, which is where the Falcons used to play their games, was just right north of this parking lot. Okay. And so what they did was they took the parking lot, and then they actually had to relocate some existing properties that were on the site, and that was working with the city and some of the local community. And then just they needed a little bit more room, so they had to relocate a road. It was actually Martin Luther King Drive that's on the south. And they relocated that road just to give them enough room to fit the stadium in that kind of parking lot site. Wow. And then once once the stadium was built, then they demolished the existing stadium, and then that became the new parking lot. Is that the Home Depot backyard? Exactly. And ah, it's, it's pretty cool. Very yeah. cool. Yes. Yeah. More stadiums need something like that. Yes, yeah. agreed. And then I wanted to jump back to what you mentioned earlier about increasing sight lines. You guys did um, mm -hmm. mega columns, uh, mm -hmm. I guess what we kind of would call those, um, mm -hmm. on this project. Was that to increase sight lines and to minimize the amount of columns needed for the, for the project? Yeah, so those columns, those 19 mega columns, are pulled way outside of the building, and so they're not anywhere near the seating bowl. But what they do is they help the flow of people around the stadium. So normally on a stadium of this size, you'd have maybe 50 columns, right? Mm -hmm. 50, 60 columns. And we only had 19. And wow. so by only having 19 columns, the uh, what we're doing is there's fewer interruptions uh, in the concourses and in the kind of the backspaces of the stadium. Um, so what happens is instead of kind of 50 or 60 smaller columns, you have 19 bigger columns. And we put, they got nicknamed the mega columns. Yeah. <laughs> At some point along the job. Yeah. So you said that they kind of help navigate the people on the concourse? Or yeah. So, so instead of having columns coming down all over the place in your concourse, right? Yeah. It, it just opens up the concourses gotcha, so they gotcha. don't have as many columns in the way as people are walking to get concessions or, or you know, go walk through the, you know, to get through their seats. So there's just fewer obstructions is what it means. Okay. Gotcha. That's a uh, yeah. That's really cool. And this process of building uh, what you would call the shell of the stadium took nineteen months, right? Or oh somewhere gosh, along uh, those lines. Depends on when you officially start, but yeah, somewhere somewhere in that time frame, it was very very fast. How often are you out there, kind of well, managing? I went to Atlanta just about every week for a couple of years, two three years. Wow. Yeah. And how was that sort of being out there, seeing seeing what you've designed and uh, how, you know, what goes into, to putting it together. Oh, it's great. You know, it's, 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 we went down there initially for meetings with the contractors and coordination meetings. And then once it gets into construction, it's really, it's always a thrill to see things being built that we've designed. Then once the roof starts to go up and, you know, and the cladding goes on, like it, there's always a milestone that's exciting to see, you know, as the building is completed. Yeah. And then, the best part is, is um, I took my whole engineering team down for the first uh, for the opening game, so that was really fun. So the architects and engineers we were all down there for the first game, and then it's fun because uh, we went to the Super Bowl as well. So that was oh, cool. cool too to get to go to the uh, to see that game. So it's it's been a lot of fun. 
that's cool what was what would you say is the the most complex part um this is a two-part question one what was the most complex part of the falcon stadium and in general when you're designing a stadium what is the most complex part so on the falcon's roof the real complexity was the was the moving roof because as the pieces move over the roof the trusses deflect right mm-hmm. so if you can think about it there's these big 200 foot cantilevers and they weigh a lot um and as they move the roof is deflecting and so coordinating that with with the moving pieces and the moving components was really quite a complex operation um so for falcons that it was really just it was the roof one, one um, quick uh one quick sort of technical question is sure. is that considered a live load then yes exactly it's a okay. live load so yeah. for for our structural people uh, yeah. uh there's a difference between a live load and a um Oh my God, I'm drawing a blank. Dead load. Dead load. Dead load. <laughs> yeah. uh, dead so the dead load is just stationary mm-hmm. items uh, that'll be there and the live load is moving items. So I was just curious since it was part of the roof, which would, which way would it be considered? But yeah. Okay. So uh, uh, gen- in general, uh, so stadiums. In general, you know, the, the, the most complex thing on just say um, a typical stadium would just be all the coordination that needs to happen between the architecture and the engineering and the MEP. You know, making sure that you don't have ducks going through, you know, spaces that are going to be occupied with trusses and making sure that the facade has all the supports that it needs. It's just all that sort of fine detail coordination between all the different designers and making sure it all comes together so that it, when, when it all is put together in the field, it all fits and it all is in the right spot. Yeah, and it's funny you mentioned the ducks. I recently went to uh, the Cowboys Stadium. And I saw you could see the ducks there and they are massive. So if that if that coordination isn't done properly, I could see that becoming a problem, uh, interrupting people's lines, lines of view and seating, actually. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. They're like, I think they're about 10 feet in diameter down there. Oh, my God. Yeah, they're huge. Your involvement on this project was structural only. Is that correct? We did structures and we helped with the uh, the facades as well. And the, the facades. facades. Okay. Yeah. So may, can you talk about some of the other really unique design features um, that you, maybe you had a hand in um, on this project? I mean, I, I think there was uh, some of the things that I had read um, was a pedestrian bridge. We talked a little bit about the um, Home Depot backyard, which obviously is not requiring much structural of anything. Yeah, but um uh, I think there was a view to the city. I, I read, you know, maybe oh, yeah. a giant glass uh, feature that kind of mm-hmm. looks out onto downtown Atlanta. So maybe you just touch on some of the kind of unique sure. design features of the of the stadium. Yeah. So the uh, the window to the city, which looks out to downtown Atlanta, is actually not glass. And oh, what really? it is is, yeah, it's it's actually really cool. It's never been used before. This this um, it's basically they call it a foil, but it's it's like a transparent fabric. And it's like saran wrap, literally. It's like a thick saran wrap. And it's, um, it's called ETFE. And it's lightweight. And it's got some give to it, unlike glass. And so we could span farther using these, these ETFE fabric. And then the structure could be a lot smaller. And so it, it opens up the view better. Because instead of having these really heavy structural members, we could, we could support the ETFE 
you know, with a much lighter weight structure. And just to give you kind of an idea, you know, glass weighs maybe 20 pounds a square foot in a frame, right? Mm -hmm. PFE weighs like a half a pound a square foot. Wow. Like it's a huge difference in weight. And so this is the first time, the first installation of this, of ETFE in the United States in a vertical kind of facade um, application. So the the ETFE... When you say fabric, I start to think, well, water can go through fabric. So yes. it, can water go through this ETFE? Uh-huh. Or? No, it's it's like it's it's almost like a, a plastic. Okay. A really thin, sometimes they call it a film or a foil. People call it different things. Yeah. Literally, if you think of like you know the cling wrap that you put over you know your your kitchen. Food, sure. Um, think of that, but like thicker. Thicker. Okay. That, that's really what this is. And it's, you know, 25 millimeters thick. It's not very thick, but it's thick enough that it's got some, um, a little bit of rigidity to it. And then we can support it with cables. So oh. we can use cables. And again, cables being much, much smaller structural members. So it doesn't block the view as much. And so it's lighter weight. You, you can support it with as much smaller structure. So it feels a lot more open. And the cool thing about this ETFE is you can put patterns on it. So if you don't want to let in a ton of sunlight, you can put little gray circles on it of various, you know, thickness or density. So maybe on the, on, you know, the, the south side where there's a lot of bright light, you don't want it shining down on people. You could put these little dot patterns on it to act as almost like a little shading mechanism. Or advertisement. Or advertisement, absolutely. <laughs> Dollars. Dollars, for sure. And you can put lights on it and you can advert. It's almost like a, a projection screen. You can you can put, you know, advertisements of different lighting and things on it. It's, it's actually really cool. So this window to the city, though, is gigantic. Do you know, do you know what the surface area was or is? Ooh, I don't remember the actual surface area. Um, and, I and, can, yeah. and is it... Um, it looks like it is flat, so it's not on a curve at all. It's not it's being not, okay. Not on a curve. Everything is flat. Like that was a real intentional design by the architects that they didn't want this kind of bulbous, curvy stadium. They wanted everything to be angular and and flat. And so, although it's tilted back, it's not. It's actually flat. But you know, what's cool about it is that the window to the city it spans almost 200 feet from uh, from one of the lower levels. And then it's missing the intermediate levels that would normally provide support for the wall. And it goes all the way to the roof. Hmm. So it goes very, it's a very long span for a facade. And we could do that because it was such a lightweight material. And do you have, so the, the window to the city. Um, now I have to admit, I really only been to Atlanta once and, uh-huh. and it wasn't, it was a business trip. So I yes. wasn't, uh, I wasn't, gallivanting around downtown so i'm not very familiar with with this area of of our country um the window to the city is it facing in an east direction and how do we how do you deal or manage sunlight and temperature right now that's a really good question it is facing east for the most part and it looks towards downtown and so the architects used those kind of dots literally like gray they call it frit Mm-hmm. Right, like a frit pattern um, on the ETFE, and it was thicker in some areas and thinner in other areas. So it's not a hundred percent transparent all the way around the building, because of the the intentional kind of reduction of the solar heat gain that you get by adding these kind of like light gray. Still, tra- you know, they're still translucent, but by adding that that 
pattern in a very thoughtful way, they could control the solar heat gain. And that was all HOK. They did a good job with that. Yeah, very cool. And this yeah. this project ended up being lead uh, platinum. Platinum. Yeah. Platinum first lead platinum stadium ever. No it's kidding. very cool. It was yeah. that the intent from the very outset. That was the intent, but they didn't know if they would get there. And you know, you got to credit the Falcons, and they have a their general op- or their operations manager, a guy named Scott Jenkins, like drove this whole thing. He was very much involved in it. He did a fabulous job. So. You know, they, it was something the Falcons really wanted, the owner wanted, and, and Scott Jenkins, you know, helped make it happen. Erlene, do you think that's going to be sort of a, a benchmark for future stadiums? And speaking of future, how do you think uh, societal changes are impacting the change of stadiums? Oh, definitely. Um, well, first of all, I do think that Falcons is the benchmark now. I think the benchmark for a long time has been Dallas. I think the ben- I mean, I, I'm speaking from personal experience, so I think the benchmark has moved over to the Falcons. Yeah. And, and is this the most recently completed stadium of this size? Uh, Minnesota is, I think, was completed just yeah a few months or maybe six months or so before Falcons. So. Okay, uh, that's where so uh, where the Vikings are playing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, but you see now, like in LA, they've copied the 360 degree scoreboard. Yeah, we, we didn't even mention that. We haven't even talked about that. The <laughs> scoreboard in the center of the Falcon Stadium weighs 2 million pounds. Oh and it's God. 2 right, million pounds. 2 million pounds. <laughs> oh and goodness. it's right in the middle of the trusses. So if you can imagine, like, you know, you have a, a ruler, the worst place to push on it is right in the middle, right? Yeah. And so, you know, we have 2 million pounds hanging from the middle of our truss spans. And so we had to incorporate that into the whole structure. So, yeah, so the 360-degree halo was a big part of the initial design of how do we integrate the scoreboard in? You know, you could see the sky, you could see the scoreboard, and it wasn't just kind of pushed back behind the end zone as an afterthought, but we spent a long time trying to make sure that we had the scoreboard in a spot that was meaningful. And so when we talk about kind of the state of the art of stadiums, we see now L.A. has a 360-degree <laughs> scoreboard in, yeah. in their stadium now, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, so we're we're starting to see some of those types of things. Which stadium in LA? The LA Rams. is building. Uh, it's under construction. Oh, now. that. Okay, okay. That way, I was like, where? <laughs> yeah, no, they have. It's not done yes. yet. Yes, of course. For the the new uh, LA Rams stadium. Of yeah, course. yeah. Exactly. And then Vegas is the Raiders. Yeah. Right? So the Raiders have moved to Las Vegas, and they're in the process of building them uh, or building a new stadium there. So one of the things that I noticed when I was watching the video. Um, that was on the science channel or the, the, the episode. So this 360 degree halo, halo screen, screen <laughs> yeah. it, can you truly, truly, truly see it from every single seat in the stadium? Because yeah. from the angle, at least in the episode, it sort of felt like it was tucked so high into the roof or the ceiling mm-hmm. that it would be actually challenging. And then, my eye keeps wanting to kind of go around and see the rest of the 360, but of course I'm not sitting directly underneath it. So you can't actually do that because you're pushed off to the side. Yeah. Well, you, okay. So you can, you can see the entire um, board from top to bottom within your viewing angle. You can't necessarily see all the way around 360. You're sitting down at the bottom. But what was interesting is, you know, again, working with the architects, we had to make sure that the trusses 
weren't too deep so that they were blocking people's views. You know, if the trusses were uh. really deep, it would block people's views to the other side of the board. And then, you know, the people like way in the high seats, making sure that they could see the top of the board. And so there's a lot of thought that went into that. And then on top of that, you know, a 730 foot long truss deflects about two feet, right? So taking into account once it's built and once it deflects and, you know, how that all works and how that affects sight lines. So you can see the board from top to bottom from every seat in the stadium. I've walked it and looked at it. So yeah. I can, wow. I can personally attest to that. Well, it's interesting too, because and not to get off topic, but there's probably media considerations that have to go into, you know, now you're not just if you're on a 360 view to your point when you sit in your chair you're only going to get one certain angle of that 360 degree halo yep. Hmm. Yep. Uh, and so you want to make sure that from every seat in the house they're getting the same scoreboard or the same mm-hmm. replay play or the mm-hmm. same advertisement right mm-hmm. from every seat mm-hmm. so i think there's probably considerations from a media standpoint on just how we how that's filmed and, and oh yeah it's, it's actually it's actually interesting what they do is um you know, if a, they show the, the football players kind of like running down the sideline or, you know, on their play on one side, and then they do the mirror image of it on the other side. Oh, there you go. Otherwise, if you think about it, it'd be going the wrong way, right? <laughs> right. So, you know, so they, there, there's some real thought put into yeah. how the board is used. And, you, you know, when we were designing, the idea was that, you know, we're going to have all, you know, football player run all the way around or look, you know, the huddle and they're all looking up in, or down into the... In, they're on the board all the way around and you're looking at the football players like if, as if you were in the huddle. And so the idea of how you program something in 360 degrees is a completely different concept than just a you know rectangular board. Exactly. Yeah. And, yeah. and so, you know, what we were hoping doesn't happen, and I think the Falcons have done a nice job with this, was that it just wasn't like, you know, 12 little rectangles all the way around showing the same thing, you know, over and over. They've actually done a really nice job of using the whole board and doing cool stuff with it and and really taking advantage of the circular kind of full 360 um, aspect of it. That's great. So was this Halo screen sort of in response to making sure that attendance stays up and and increase? Certainly. It was certainly part of the idea of trying to create spectacle and excitement and a reason to come to the game and to make it more interesting than sitting at home or watching it on your phone. Yeah. You know, the, the scoreboard was certainly a response to that. You know, the roof, the way the roof opens is a response to that. The amenities that the Falcons have provided, you know, is is also a response to all those types of things. The roof, so let's go back to the roof for a second. So the roof opening and closing, would, do they make a point to, to do that during the game while the stadium is full? Or is is oh, sure. it really only sure. opened and closed? I mean, so I guess the question is really is, are they, do, yeah, are they <laughs> doing it from, from like a show perspective of they want all 70,000 people in there to experience it? Are they really opening and closing it simply when there's a weather concern or weather issue? Well, so I can tell you at the Super Bowl, when I was there, they opened it um, during the national anthem. And then the, the planes flew over super cool. Oh, cool. And then, and then they closed it. <laughs> okay. So the rule in the NFL is the, the, they have to declare whether the roof is open or closed a few hours before the game. Oh, interesting. And whatever, whatever they choose, it has to stay that way unless there's a weather emergency. Ah, okay. So I didn't know that. Unfortunately, there's not an opportunity really to open and close it during a game just because of the, the rules. But the idea of being able to open and close it when the fans are there so they can see it, I think is, is important. You know, we designed the roof so that it opens and closes in seven minutes, 
right? Okay. Which is yeah, a fraction of what, you know, other stadiums are, you know, in the twenties. And so, you know, the real intent is so that people can see it open and that would be interesting. And so, um, you know, just the, the Falcons have done a good job of trying to figure out, you know, when they can show people how the roof opens and closes. Can we talk about the sky bridges? Um, I, you know, I, I think the, uh, Bank of California Stadium, which is an LA LAFC stadium, soccer stadium in Los Angeles, uh, mm-hmm. has incorporated some sky bridges. I don't know that they're to the extent of what you have, mm-hmm. but just curious, is that a newer concept that I'm only just now kind of seeing and experiencing, or has that been around for a long time and design considerations there? Yeah, sure. I mean, actually, that concept has been around for a while. And the reason those bridges exist is to let the fans have that view to the city. If we would have filled in that whole area with seating, then you wouldn't be able to look out through the windows of the city and see downtown. So really the sky bridges are there to allow the view, right? And then also just to allow people to go all the way around 100 or 360 degrees around around the whole concourse, uh-huh. right? So that you don't get to the end and get stuck. So, um, but it also, what's really cool at the Falcon Stadium is the sky bridges are open to anybody. Right. You don't have to be a club seat holder or a fancy ticket holder. Anybody can go stand and hang out on the sky bridge and watch the game, which is actually kind of a cool experience. And so that idea of the sky bridge is about connection. It's about creating fan experiences up there. There's different concessions that are on carts and things in, in that area. So it's just, it just makes it a fun place to be. Going through this process of doing this stadium and, you know, seeing other stadiums come about, has anything sort of bubbled to the surface Um that you can project into what the future of stadiums will look like? Have you had any thought of how how <laughs> things are going to change and what's the next milestone going to be or benchmark going to be? Oh, geez. Well, you know, like we were just talking about L.A. and um, their scoreboard is getting bigger and it's two-sided, 360-degree scoreboard. So yeah. I think, you know, scoreboards are going to continue to grow and be more and more impressive. But I do think this idea around trying to use innovative materials like ETFE and there's other things out there um, is really important. I think that the size of these stadiums, the the sheer scale of them, you know, whenever you can reduce the weight of materials or use less materials, use less resources, that's always a good thing. But in terms of just the fan experience, you know, trying to make it is in, you know inviting and interesting and exciting for fans to come to the game and come and be in this shared environment that you know that when they score a goal people go crazy right and yeah. that it's really cool to be there and you know how that evolves I think is still we're still trying to figure all that out yeah because I think the NFL have sort of sort of shot themselves in the foot as far as they've made the TV experience so great. So good. It yeah. competes with going yep. to the game. So yep. now and it, TVs are not expensive anymore. So people have really nice big TVs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So to be able to sit at home in your own conditioned environment uh, is putting a lot of pressure on those that design and build stadiums to compete with that. Yep. But you know what's really interesting in Atlanta is that they they started an MLS team literally brand new opened when this you know started when this the same year that the stadium started or stadium opened and their MLS team sells out those put 75,000 people in that stadium for MLS and they go bonkers for their, their team 
And so the Atlanta United has been amazing. And so we talk about trying to get fans to the stadium and fans to come to games. Like Atlanta has totally figured it out for their MLS team. They have a huge following. Yeah. In fact, it's kind of funny. We um, we designed like in the middle of design. We're going a million miles an hour trying to get the stadium, you know, drawings done. And they want to put in what they call the they call them the MLS curtains. And what it was is this idea that well, we're only going to sell you know like thirty forty thousand seats in the stadium, seventy five thousand. We don't want to see thirty five thousand empty seats. So we're right. going to have these curtains that, that are basically motorized that hang from the trusses and they're heavy and the motors are heavy. And they come down and they basically block your view. And it kind of makes this sort of like billboard looking thing with, you know, Atlanta United logos and things on it that that really they blocks out the empty seats. And they don't really even need them because they can sell out their stadium for Atlanta United games. It's great. But they are there. So that was in, that that actually did get they're, designed. They're there. Yeah. They're yeah, built in. If they want to if they want to reduce the, you know, do a sta- stadium or an event that's, you know, smaller size, they certainly can do it. Um, so that's all there, but the idea of getting fans into your stadium, I think is, you know, multifaceted. It's not just about the bells and whistles of your stadium and surely having a good team helps, but you know, there's, there's a whole lot of things that go into it that really sort of activate your fan base to get them to come to the games. Yeah. They talked about, I've heard about the, um, what is it? LA bank, uh, bank of California, California, Mm -hmm. uh, arena. And when they, prior to launching that, that's uh that stadium and that team they really took consideration into how they built built that culture so they identified a fan base like a core group of fan base and they have a whatsapp chat group yeah for that oh, that cool. yeah. for that yeah. group and yeah. uh if i'm correct i believe they they flew uh the a group of people out to overseas somewhere to some where some huge soccer culture is and sort of educated them on soccer culture and the chants and the the lifestyle yeah, of and, course. and so they brought all those people back and oh, they cool. started to build this this uh groundswell of culture and by the time the stadium opened there was this swarm of people that already knew the songs knew the the chants and the dances mm-hmm. and the, everything so they they had this culture that that was already uh infused into that stadium and i think they sell out every time and like you said, it's like an amazing experience. It's an amazing there. experience. A lot of fun to be there. Yeah, it wouldn't be the same. Watching an LAFC game on television would just not do it justice. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's really what we're trying to create with design, right? And I think you can get so far with design, but you still need that that fan base that's really into it to, to really push it. Yeah. But, you know, the other things that we're doing in the, kind of the design space is – you know, with having, say, bench seating like a couch, right? So if you're in, say, a club or a suite or maybe certain sections, you know, like actually having couches where you go get beers and sit down and it's kind of like being in your living room, right? Yeah. Um, or, you know, just having like mother's rooms if mothers want to bring their young children to the game. Hmm. And, you know, there's there's all kinds of different things that, that we're looking at trying to just make it a more inviting place for the modern fan. Well, there was so a baseball stadium in Nashville, Tennessee, uh, for their minor league team, uh, and it's a fairly new stadium. Although I don't know the name, but one of the things that I just thought was so cool, and again, this is minor league, so not nearly the same number of attendees. Mm-hmm. But you know, in the outfield, they had sort of an outdoor bar. 
that was really felt more like someone's backyard with several cornhole and horseshoe and uh, kind of yard games. So people could be playing yard games, but still sort of be involved with with the baseball game that was happening at the same time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so maybe that's what it is. is It's that experience. People want that experience. They don't want to be confined to a chair to their one seat yeah right right so, sort of evolving the stadium into a giant house <laughs> exactly exactly it's, it's true i mean there the, we, what we see now in, in existing stadiums is a lot of retrofits of like club even like club is but like restaurant spaces where you can go and buy a ticket that maybe isn't super expensive because you stand and there's high tables and it's kind of like being in a bar but you're at the game Right. It's kind of set up for younger people who maybe want to mingle and socialize and watch the game. Um, but, you know, there's so many different types of experiences that architects are now designing and creating within stadiums to cater to different groups of spectators and kind of what their what their kind of expectations and amenity needs are. So speaking of different groups and spectators, we all know that stadiums aren't exclusively for sports. Right. Yes, so absolutely. this stadium, I, I think, has already hosted a number of large oh, concerts. Yeah. Yep, yep. Um, maybe it's going to host a political event. Uh, you know, there's all sorts of things. So on the design side, um, how much discussion and thought goes into uh, the preparation of, well, what else could this stadium be used for? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, and I think that's really important because it doesn't make sense to put that much time and effort, resources, you know, natural you know, materials and things and spend that much money on a venue that's going to be used for eight home NFL games a year, right? Mm-hmm. That's exactly, crazy. yeah. So for us, it's really important that, that it's multi-purpose and that these venues can be used for other sports, they can be used for concerts, they can be used for speaking engagements, that, you know, all kinds of things. And so there really is quite a bit of consideration that goes into that. And that has to do with, um, you know, how you get on and off the field, how the, you know, how big is the access? Can you do monster trucks in your stadium? You know, <laughs> uh, yeah. like all those sort of things we talk about in the design phase and the back of house spaces. Are they the appropriate to accommodate, say, you know, uh, you know, a concert event and things like that. So all of that is considered during design. Yeah. So, uh, Erlene, we're going to wind down, uh, okay. but a couple of questions uh, or mm-hmm. one question for you. Whether it's structural or architectural or anything else, what's one thing that you would recommend um, people to consider going into a stadium of the future? Um, what, uh, let's say someone's starting one right now, what mm-hmm. would you recommend as far as sort of a, a top consideration to um to address stadium design <laughs> yeah um you know i'm going to give you an answer from the structural standpoint yeah i think for the kind of future stadium design it's really important to minimize columns mm. it's kind of like what we did at falcons because if you have too many columns what we're seeing in these existing facilities is it's hard to reconfigure a space you know the, the old-fashioned club that's 10 feet wide and you know it's you know eight people in it that cost tons of money doesn't necessarily, you know, fly off the shelf like it used to. So creating a space of taking like four of those and making a big kind of restaurant social space is great, but it's hard to do when you've got columns in the way. So, you know, the idea of trying to minimize columns and trying to make the spaces more flexible for future adaptations, I think is a good thing to think about. But there's a whole bunch of ways you could answer that question. So that's just the structural approach. No, that's perfect. 
Okay, Erlene, so we come to the end and we want to uh, ask you a question that, that we're <laughs> asking all of our guests. Okay. And that is, what was that like? What was it like when you had your first job interview? <laughs> oh, my gosh. So my first kind of real job interview after I, um, I got my structural engineering degree, I, want, I, was, I was in Nebraska, and I wanted to leave Nebraska because there's not a lot of big structures being built in Nebraska, right? So I had an interview in Chicago um, at Perkins & Will in the mid-'90s, and there were architects and structural engineers at the time. And I'm like, this is the greatest thing ever. So I have this interview with um, the structural principal, and everything goes great. I'm super excited. At the very end, we're walking out, and he points to a building in downtown Chicago. And and he says, that's my favorite building. And we're on the top of, we're like the 36th floor of the IBM building. It's like beautiful office. I'm like, it's for me in Nebraska, this was like a big deal even to be on the 36th floor of a building. So anyway, he points to this, to this building and he's like, that's my favorite. I'm like, oh, I love the Sears Tower. That's so cool. And it's the John Hancock. Uh-oh. <laughs> he's a structural engineer. Of course I know this, but I'm like a nervous wreck the whole time. And I was like, I was like like realized it after I said it, I was like mortally embarrassed <laughs> anyway so I, I'm like he's like okay whatever and I'm like bye bye whatever um and I walk out I'm like oh my god I totally blew it I'm never gonna get a job like that was such a shame and uh, I was kicking myself I go back to Nebraska but then a couple days later they actually called and offered me the job even though I was a complete idiot <laughs> yeah. at what point did you realize and- that you named it wrong like maybe like a minute later, like and we you didn't correct goodbye. it, and then I was like, oh, now it's too late. To oh no! Anything, and so I just didn't even say anything. I just let it slide. But honestly, like that, they they hired me from Nebraska. God bless them, um, and they're great people, and I still keep in touch with them. And you know that's what got me started. I got out of Nebraska, went to Chicago, started working there, and then kind of made my way east and ended up in New York twenty some years ago. And here I am today. And how long has Hatfield been in business? So we've only been in business now two years. Okay. So yeah, so the stadium project that we just talked about, I did while I was a a, a partner at Bureau Happel, which was my oh, gotcha. previous. Okay. When you were in, not I know we're wrapping up, but yeah. just when you were in uh, architecture school and you envisioned being a structural engineer, did you envision it being this size of projects? You know, I was wanted that the to goal? do bigger projects, but maybe I never thought I'd do something as big as the stadiums that I work on and the towers that I do today. Yeah. Any other, yeah. Um, maybe, and that's maybe a great way to end, to just other big projects that you're working on that um, our listeners can go check out? Uh, or maybe things that you recently completed that, that we could also go oh, look at. Oh, yeah, that would be better. Uh, we did work on a museum in uh, Chendao, China, oh, a wow. natural history museum in China. It's very cool. It's designed by Pelly Clark Pelly. Okay. And we're doing a bunch of towers in New York City from seven stories to 30 stories. Um, so lots of lots of towers here in New York. Great. But Yeah, so hopefully we'll have a big sports stadium to talk about soon. Fantastic. <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Erlene. Really appreciate you sitting down with yes, us. Thanks. All right. So can you guys edit me and make me sound intelligent? <laughs> We're going to make sure we own. include that line. <laughs> Before you go, bonus tip. If you're interested in digging into the details of stadium design and construction, there's a great series on YouTube 
uh, it's called From the Ground Up, where they chronicle the construction of the new Raiders Stadium, which is going in in Las Vegas, Nevada. Thank you again to Francisco Gonzalez Pulido for sharing his experience with the Diablo Stadium. You can find out more about his firm, FGP Atelier, at fgp-atelier.com. And a huge thank you again to Erlene Hatfield for sitting down with us to discuss stadiums and highlighting the Mercedes-Benz Stadium. You can find out more about her firm, Hatfield Group, at h-a-t-f-i-e-l-d-g-r-p.com. And thank you again for hanging out with us. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe. And while you're there, please rate, like the show, and forward a link to your friend. Your support is the only way that the show grows. Don't forget to check out spacespodcast.com for more info. But before you go, next time on Spaces Podcast. So when you bought the lot, there was a house, there was already a, a unit on it. Yeah, correct? single family, three bedroom, two bath house. So you guys were living in that. Yeah, we're living in that. Yeah, and in that five years while we're saving money, I probably did about twenty different designs. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> and most of them were attached to the front house because okay. I thought that would make the most sense. But as we started really thinking about moving in, my wife actually once once you know we started going forward with it, she's like, hey, I want to let's live in the back house. Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host Patrick McLaney, FAIA former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise. From 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm.